I want to keep uh, Ezekiel open if you've got it there in front of you. How about a pray for us as we start? Our Father, uh, we thank you for your word. We thank you that by it you continue to speak to us even in this very moment. We ask now that you might help us to understand uh, how it is that you are at work in our world and in our lives. And this morning we ask that you would please give us obedient hearts, that we might live as you would have us live, uh, particularly in the light of what we learned this morning from this ancient world into which we're about to take a peek. Amen. Well, um, I gave this a bit of a, a, a time out from what you've been doing in terms of your, your preaching because you're looking at 1 Samuel, is that right? Yeah. I'm doing a series on um, resetting things. Resetting things, okay. Well, this is the re- prequel. Could be. Could be. <laughs> <laughs> so we're looking um, at the prophet Ezekiel and we're looking at someone who spoke into a very, very dark time for God's people. And there were all sorts of reasons why you might consider it a dark time. But first and foremost, above all else, uh, I'm saying it was a dark time because the promises that God had made to his people, uh, those promises of a land and a nation and blessing, all of those promises, well, they just seemed to be unravelling, falling apart. Uh, Ezekiel, you see, was a prophet uh, who, with many from Israel, at this stage had been taken into captivity in Babylon. And this was the second deportation. So around 597 BC, maybe eight or so years after Daniel and his three friends had already been carted off. Uh, And at this point, God's people, if if you begin at the beginning of Ezekiel, see God's people had been reminded time and time and time again that their present circumstances, this exile uh, in the land of the Babylonians, this exile was the direct result of the judgment of God upon their rebellion against him. Uh, We just heard it read in verses 16 and 17 of chapter 36, when the people of Israel were living in their own land, they defiled it by their conduct and their actions. And uh, Ezekiel used a very graphic metaphor that I won't repeat. But God says, as a consequence, so I poured out my wrath on them. But as that chapter 36 unfolded, you notice that it wasn't all doom and gloom. You see, God uh, begins to reveal here a future that was going to go beyond the captivity. And I think this passage brings a very clear promise from God to restore his people to the land and to restore their privileged relationship with him. However, as as big a promise as they are, did you notice that God, before we ever get to the what God promised to do, the first thing that happens is, as readers of Ezekiel, we're challenged about why God promised what he promised. I don't know if you noticed that in the shape of the reading. Uh, But let me explain. In in the religious frameworks of the ancient Near East, uh, God was obligated to protect and preserve his people in their land. And if a nation or a people group were to be conquered and and removed from their land, well, that called into question either the character of their God or his power, um, his very nature, if you like. 
And that a nation could be conquered actually suggested that their God was either unwilling or unable to do anything about it, to protect them. And in fact, that question is implied. In in verse 20, uh, we kind of listen in to what was being said about God and Israel by the nations around. It was said of them, uh, these are the Lord's people and yet they had to leave his land. So before God says a word about what he was going to do, God reminded his people then, and for that matter, he reminds us uh, right in this very moment, that in the very first instance, whatever God is up to in this world, while it might involve us, it is not all about us. It's not all about us. It's not for your sake, people of Israel, that I'm going to do these things. It's kind of confronting, isn't it? It is not for your sake, people of Israel, that I'm going to do these things, but for the sake of my holy name. You see, in the light of all this questioning of his character and his power, God says that in the first instance, he's acting to restore his name among the nations. And, you know, brothers and sisters, as we contemplate these words today, uh, this is a, a salutary reminder that this world and everything in it, including us, ultimately we exist for the glory of God. God is not our heavenly sugar daddy whose role is to pick us up when we fall down and to provide us with all the comforts and privileges that we think we'd like to enjoy while we spend our days in this world waiting for eternity. That's not how it works. We rightly praise God for his amazing salvation in Jesus, but we're reminded that even as we think about that, that the central character in the salvation story is Jesus. It's not us. God's people have always and will always exist in the first instance for his glory's sake. So, God was acting for the sake of his glory and now we come to the question, what was it that God was going to do? What was God going to do that would so grab the nations around Israel that they would realise who this God was and how is he going to do that well here God says he's going to take the initiative and just as he did in the time of the exodus there was going to be a new exodus for I will take you out of the nations I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land See, God's purpose in creation, this idea that God was, is uh, creating a people for himself who will live in his place under his rule, that story has never gone away. That commitment by God, God's purpose, if you like, in creating has never gone away. And so in the same way as he rescued his people from Egypt, now he's promising to restore his people as a nation and to restore them to their land. However... This time around, something's going to be different. God wasn't just going to take the initiative and gather his people and restore them to the land. He was also going to take the initiative to deal with the consequences of their sin. I'll sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols, says verse 25. Notice God says, I will do this. It is God himself who's promised to act to bring cleansing. 
And even more amazing is that the, uh, God promised not only to take the initiative to act, to cleanse his people, but to do it in such a way that it would be a once-for-all-time thing. There would be no need of an ongoing cleansing. Now, those of you who've been close to me this morning would be glad to know that I took a shower before I left my hotel and came over here. Um, and I do that every morning because, if I'm anything like you, we all notice when people don't. But it's not like that with God's cleansing that he's talking about here. You see, because uh, here God is promising a spiritual cleansing that's going to be associated with God bringing a fundamental change in human nature. Uh, Verse 26, quite a famous verse really, I will give you a new heart. I'll put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. Now, we all know about the sacrificial system and we know that it brought cleansing at the cost of animal sacrifice and significant ritual. And we also know from reading our Bibles that it never brought any true change in the hearts of God's people, did it? In fact, by its very repetition, um, the sacrificial system demonstrated that in and of itself it was not God's ultimate answer to the question of being right with him. But now God's promising he's going to address what the problem was. God is going to address the very heart of the human problem, the problem of the human heart. God himself was going to indwell them by his spirit. I'll put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. It's kind of a good reminder here, isn't it, that uh, in our Christian world we so often look for God's spirit to give us power to do all sorts of things. We ask uh, for his power to be successful in ministry, to be successful in business, to be successful in relationships. But here God says... His indwelling spirit is given to empower obedience. What happens? Well, verse 28 through 38, we actually see the outcome that God promises. And and God begins by reiterating the promises that he gave to Abraham way back when. Those promises that have been repeated throughout the generations. And verse 28, you will live in the land I gave your ancestors You will be my people and I will be your God. And verse 29 and 30, they kind of amplify that outcome. They pump it up and explain what was going on even more. There's this description of abundance in the land. In fact, a description of a land and a saved people from whom the curse of God has been lifted. A land that the nations around them would one day describe as being like the Garden of Eden. I'm going to make this a rhetorical question because I found unless people get to know a preacher, they can be a little bit shy. So did you notice, did you notice that when God said what he said, he didn't place a single condition on it? What are we used to in reading in our Old Testaments? If you do this, 
I will be your God and you will be my people. That bit's missing here, isn't it? Not one condition. All of what God promised here, all of the promises, were only dependent upon God's sovereign action. All of this, all of God's promises, are entirely an act of grace. They're entirely God's unmerited favour. There's no hint at all that anything of this comes because it's been deserved or earned by God's people. Uh, All of the blessings here come as an act of undeserved grace as God acts for the sake of his glory. And what's perhaps even more startling, notice in verse 31 and 32, the reaction of God's people to what God was doing, to God's initiative, actually came after God had saved them. Did you notice that? See, it's in response to God's saving activity and to his blessing that we see um, a people described as being repentant at last. Then you will remember your evil ways and wicked deeds and you will loathe yourself for your sins and detestable practices. See, repentance was not given to them as some kind of condition of salvation. Repentance was their response to the saving grace of God. See, this amazing God who in taking the initiative to cleanse and change uh, the very nature of we human beings by heart transplanting us. He, by his spirit who gives us um, the power to obey. When he does that, how else would we react except to repent? Now, it's really tempting as a preacher to look at uh, a crazy season like we've been through. Um, I think of people in the bush who began with drought and who moved to fires and who moved to pestilence, (laughs) to a plague. Um, Not just a virus, but mice, depending on where you are. And now they're flooding. It's rather biblical, isn't it? (laughs) So tempting to say... You know, you read Ezekiel and it doesn't matter how dark things are, God is with you. And that would be true because God does make that promise to never leave us or forsake us. But it's much better to understand this passage by putting it in salvation history and seeing what was going on. You see, we know that the return happened. We've read Ezra and Nehemiah, We, we know that. But we also know that the physical nation of Israel, as significant as it had been once upon a time, well, it never again achieved the heights that it had under King David or King Solomon. But on the other hand, the promises that God made here, they are well and truly in hand. You see, I think in our um, turbulent world, kind of history now but I can't help but think that Donald Trump was as miffed by the fact that the virus knocked him off the front page as anything else. Call me a cynic if you like. But you know what in this turbulent world it's even been tough to buy a roll of toilet paper sometimes hasn't it? I did love it. Our local Woolworths replaced the toilet paper aisle with Easter eggs and all sorts of other chocolate goodies. They left the sign up saying toilet paper but when you went there that was what they found. It is easy to be cynical about our world, isn't it? 
But isn't it so good to know that in this turbulent world, that at God's initiative, the risen Lord Jesus is leading us, leading his people in a new exodus. He is gathering us from among every tribe and every nation. There's a beautiful picture of the, the ascended Christ leading captives in his train in Ephesians 4 verse 8. And it's so good to know that at God's initiative in the person of the Son, God has acted to make us clean. That once for all time event that he promised, God has done it. It's so good to know that Jesus' blood shed at the cross has cleansed us. And it is so good to know that by his spirit, uh, for those who are following Jesus, he has heart transplanted us and indwells us at this very moment by his spirit who empowers us to obedience. And it's so good to know, you know, we, we get into debates sometimes about how, much, how many of the blessings of the world to come and how many um, are ours now and how many we're going to have to wait for. It seems that as Christians we've been debating those things for a long time, probably a couple of thousand years actually. But, you know, we, we hear that, those debates and sometimes we wonder, but you know what? The undeniable truth is that right now there really are some awesome present realities and I think the biggest one of all is that right now we are assured of our salvation. We know we are saved forever because God is the one who's acted to do that. It's so good to know that right now and we've already exercised that privilege together this morning. But right now, we enjoy personal access to God by our great high priest, the Lord Jesus. Because through him, there is a man who stands forever in the presence of God, a man worthy to be there. And because of him, we are confident that God hears our prayers. And right now, we are confident uh, we enjoy citizenship in heaven. And this morning, we have a little taste of it to come. No masks in heaven. Isn't that cool? Brings a whole new layer of meaning to knowing as we, you know, as we presently are known. Uh, but we do enjoy citizenship in heaven in fellowship with our fellow believers. And as you saw from that video from Trent, isn't it so good to know that right now, as God's people, we share in this gathering in of God's people. You see, as we take the gospel of the Lord Jesus to those who don't know him, as we speak his gospel, take it on our lips if you like, then the Lord Jesus saves those who are his. And, you know, brothers and sisters, it might not yet be seen by the nations around us. But we do know that what was promised in Ezekiel actually has been fulfilled. It was fulfilled in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus. And it's in that work that we included 
to God's glory and by his unmerited favour. Amen.